You're listening to One Decision. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. This week a year ago, the US ended the longest war abroad in its history. 20 years of fighting in Afghanistan came to an end with a hasty withdrawal that coincided with Taliban militants, who began the conflict by refusing to hand over Osama bin Laden shortly after 9-11, taking control of the capital Kabul, winning swathes of land from the government in a stunning rampage across the country. One year on, we revisited that decision by President Biden to make good on the deal the Trump administration made with the Taliban and to pull out US forces ahead of that formal deadline, just as the Taliban began gaining ground over the summer. I am delighted to welcome um, my guests today. We have joining us uh, Fauzia Kufi. She is a former member of the Afghan parliament and the vice president of the Afghan assembly. She's also formerly part of the Afghan delegation to the peace talks negotiations with the Taliban in Doha. Uh, Fauzia, thank you so much for joining us. We also have Jake Cusack. Uh, he's a former US Marine Corps officer. He's a Harvard Business and Kennedy Schools grad and the co-founder of Cross Boundary Group, which is an investment firm specializing in frontier markets. Jake, it's great to have you with us. Uh, and lastly, uh, but not leastly, we have, of course, uh, my partner in crime, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former chief uh, of Britain's intelligence service, MI6. Richard, great for you uh, to join us again. Now, to all of our guests, it's coming up to a year since the US and NATO led withdrawal of Western forces from Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban takeover of the country and the capital Kabul and the collapse of the civilian Afghan government. On the 2nd of July, the US quietly withdrew soldiers from Bagram Air Base, the, the, the main US base in Afghanistan throughout the war. By that point, the Taliban had taken nearly half of all the provinces in Afghanistan. And by the time we got uh, to mid-August, uh, Kandahar, the second largest city in Afghanistan, had fallen to the Taliban. Now. Before we begin the discussion, I want to quote President Biden, who is speaking the day after Kandahar fell on the 14th of August, where he said one more year or five more years of US military presence would not have made a difference if the Afghan military cannot or will not hold its own country. And an American, an endless American presence in the middle of another country's civil conflict was not acceptable to me. And it was very shortly after that that things spiralled further. We had the fleeing uh, of uh, Afghan President Ghani uh, on the day that Kabul fell on the 15th. The Taliban took the presidential palace and the US embassy was evacuated. Now, I first, firstly want to start with Fauzia. Fauzia, take us back to that day, the day that Kabul fell the 15th of August 2021. Where were you and what were you doing at the time? So I was in Kabul on that day. I remember how Kabul was full of traffic. Everybody wanted to escape, not knowing where to go. They just wanted to escape themselves. They knew something, they could sense. I, we, we all could sense something is happening, but not to the extent and, and in that speed that it happened. Um, I remember I was receiving a lot of messages from women across Afghanistan asking me what to do because I was in the negotiation and I contacted one of the negotiation members with Taliban and I told him that, you know, there is a lot of women rights activists and everybody's in Kabul. So can you tell me what will happen if your troops enter Kabul with these women rights activists and civil society and journalists? 
And he said, I remember exactly, he said, well, the agreement, you know that um, we are not entering Kabul milita uh, militarily. That's the agreement. So even he, as the negotiator, was not aware of that rapid uh, escalation. I mean, Jake, as a former senior officer in the Marine Corps, the chaos of that and the symbol, the symbolism that <clears throat> of, of the U.S. deserting Afghanistan in the dead of night where more than 2,400 U.S. servicemen and women lost their lives. It, it was a difficult summer for you, wasn't it, to, to watch that happening? Yeah, I, I do think it was, I mean, it was, of course, you know, depressing, I think, for many people involved or had been involved. Um, I think you could disagree with the policy decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, as I did and, and others did. Um, but obviously, that's, you know, the right of the elected president and um, his team to make these kind of policy decisions. But even if you take that as a given that we are withdrawing from Afghanistan, I think it's it's certainly clear that it could have been done better in a more orderly way and in a way that took care of um, the friends and allies who had fought alongside us um, for two decades. Right. Uh, Richard, we've we, the, it was a, a policy decision that obviously a lot of people uh, have disagreed with since. And something that struck me was the way President Biden stuck to his guns uh, during those press conferences in the summer where he sort of tried to reframe what was clearly being seen on the international stage as a complete collapse and a chaotic withdrawal where he said uh, in, in one statement, um, you know, we did not... Uh, we did not go to Afghanistan to nation build. We we went to Afghanistan to get the terrorists who attacked us in 9-11 and to deliver justice to Osama bin Laden. We did that. And yet a report by the Republicans in the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee this year on the withdrawal found that while there was substantial uh, disagreement about the policy to leave Afghanistan, uh, Americans actually share an outrage in how the United States withdrew last summer and what that failure has done to America's standing overseas. And in the report, uh, it says that the Biden administration ignored numerous intelligence reports about the potential for a speedy Taliban takeover of Kabul. They decided to abandon Bagram Air Base, disregarded descent cables from the State Department, failed to plan an evacuation until it was too late, and in the process, abandoned tens of thousands of Afghan partners. The administration did not make a decision on evacuations from Afghanistan until a National Security Council committee meeting, just hours before the fall of Kabul. So Richard, I want to ask you, how much responsibility lies in the Biden administration for the nature of that withdrawal? And you know, hands were obviously tied to the deal that had been signed by the previous administration, the Trump administration, with the Taliban in Doha. But did that mean the total abandonment of the Afghan army and the messy nature uh, of the withdrawal? Was that written in stone, do you think? No, I don't think it was. And I mean, I think that, you know, Biden's foreign policy team made a series of very, very poor decisions. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say is that if you make your foreign policy decisions around domestic considerations, which is certainly what happened in this case with the with the Democratic administration, I think you're in, in for trouble. The second thing I would say is they could have planned a withdrawal over a long period of time 
uh, and they had the facilities, they had the logistics um, to be able to do that. It, it, to me, it was completely incomprehensible that they sort of shut down and ran away. Um, look, my involvement in Afghanistan was a long time ago, and it was after 9-11, and I went to Afghanistan in the period up to my retirement in 2004, and I went there with Blair, and I remember very clearly a prominent Afghan saying to me, you'll get tired of this, we'll wait you out, and, you know, we will ultimately win. Um, and that sort of horrible prediction rings in my ears. I, I, uh, the decision to employ, to deploy large-scale British forces in the southern part of Afghanistan happened just after I retired. A group of us in government then in 2004 were strongly opposed to making a big boots-on-the-ground commitment because I think we felt that we would get sucked in to an endless conflict and that we would build responsibility to the Afghan people, which in the medium to long term we would not fulfil. It was how you managed our intervention and how you managed our departure. And I think what we did for the Afghan people and then what we did to them, I mean, what we did for them initially was very constructive. What we then did to them was dreadful. It was a betrayal. And I feel very, very strongly and sorely about that. And, you know, the idea that we would just run away, uh, which what, you know, and, and the Biden administration did not consult their NATO allies. And NATO forces would have stayed for a longer period of time, a much longer period of time, if the Americans had stayed, because the Americans deployed the logistical power and NATO could have supplied the ground forces. And they could have easily had a phased withdrawal that could have taken two years. They could have kept control of the airports. They could have kept control of Kabul. Okay, it would have been problematic, but it would not have been impossible. And I, 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 I feel really awful mm. about the whole thing. I mean that idea of that that idea of of keeping a small presence of highly trained special forces units um, on the ground in Afghanistan to deter the Taliban. Uh, and, and other groups has been it was made throughout the summer it's been made since in retrospect is something the west should have considered jake let's hear from from you first uh do you think that that was would you have advocated for that for the for the west and, and nato to keep small contingents of special forces um in strategic areas in afghanistan do you think that would have been enough to keep the taliban out of power um and uh you know i i i'm I'm taken back to an interview we did recently with Bob Gates, the former Secretary of Defense, where he agrees with that. He said uh, that we could have pre prevented the catastrophe that took place, um, but that the outcome would have taken much longer. And, uh, you know, it's no way to tell uh, if, if the Taliban would have ended up eventually winning in time. Yeah, I, I, so I, I do agree with that. And I think that argument was actually being made, you know, even a, a decade earlier when deadlines first started being set for troop withdrawal. I think it was a little bit of a false dichotomy to say we need to completely fix Afghanistan and make it like Denmark and have hundreds of thousands of troops or have no troops at all. I think there was um, a viable path from my perspective to have a small number of troops for an indefinite period of time, essentially, as, as we have done um, in other countries. I think setting a deadline 
um, as Sir Richard said, leads to a situation where you're just being waited out. Um, and so I think there was a there was a middle ground between the total withdrawal that happened and a situation, um, as was mentioned, where you're trying to you know fully control Helmand or something like that. I just think there was a more viable path forward, um, and you just need the political will to to sustain that across you know multiple administrations as well. Yeah, I mean, the political will was never there, was it? I mean, were all those announcements for a, a timeline, a deadline of withdrawal? From the U.S. point of view, was that more about various U.S. administrations struggling to continue the, the political argument for these forever wars rather than committing uh, to the mission in Afghanistan? Yeah, I, I think uh, certainly there was domestic considerations, right, that in, in all that fed into all of those pronouncements from um, Obama to Trump to, to Biden. Um, I also think and I say this, you know, I was after the Marines, I went to Harvard Kennedy School and, you know, there's a little bit of maybe, you know, too much analysis or trying to be too cute policy wise and thinking that if you have just the right policy and sort of just the right conditions, um, you can sort of make everyone happy. You can make your domestic audience happy. You can make your, your foreign policy audience um, or you can achieve your foreign policy goals. And I think the reality is, is one, you have to adapt to, the, to, to what is actually happening on the ground. And, and we didn't adapt to that. Um, and sometimes you have to make open-ended commitments. Um, now, I really only became you know, significantly involved again during the evacuation. So I don't have access to all the information. But from my perspective, there was this middle path. But do you think it would have been feasible to have to have stationed special forces troops in various strategic parts in Afghanistan, or would they have needed all of the all of, of the big heavy support? You know, this this idea of oh, it's just a, you know, if we just kept a small number of special forces, none of this would have happened. W was that a realistic option? I mean, militarily, would would there have needed to be a lot more infrastructure and support there, and not just a matter of leaving a handful of special forces troops in Afghanistan and them standing between the Taliban uh, and and the Afghan uh, and the Afghan army? I think it would have been probably a bit more than a handful of special forces troops. So I think somewhere between, you know, 3,000, 5,000 troops would have been tenable. And you wouldn't have been trying to control all of Afghanistan. You would have been trying to control Bagram, Kabul, um, possibly Herat, Mazar, Jalalabad, other population centers. Um, and essentially, you know, hold, hold the line, hold the gains that had been made. Um, and I think in that world, we'd be uh, today still in a place where a large uh, group of Afghan women could still go to high school, which is no longer the case. We gave up a lot of those gains. Mm. Fauzia, I, I, I want to hear from you exactly on that, on, on how it changed when the US started talking to the Taliban directly in, in, in Doha, because many have accused the Americans of cutting out the Afghan civilian government in that sense. But just lastly, before we move on to that, I, I do want to, to put to you, do, it, would the Afghans, uh, obviously, there is there is a there they are there's it's not a homogenous society. There's a very there's a, a, a lot of dissenting opinion. But do you think uh, a long term stationing of special forces troops in certain parts of Afghan of Afghanistan um, would have been accepted by the civilian population? Did they want the Americans out as much as Biden did? Uh, do you think it would have been tenable? Would it have been the right thing to do to have kept a small contingent of Western special forces uh, supporting the Afghan army in strategic places in Afghanistan? I don't think it was about the number. It was about the message. 
So mm -hmm. I think the U.S. or NATO presence uh, message was important to our security forces in terms of their morale, in terms of their, you know, uh, making them more accountable and responsible to take over gradually. So a small number, it, it was about the message. It was not about, you know, when, when completely withdrawal happened, especially, you know, unconditional withdrawal by September was announced, um, the, the surrendering increased, uh, expedited, and partly because... Um, partly because our, in my conversation, our security forces thought that, well, this is part of the plan to, to withdraw from Afghanistan and then hand over everything to Taliban. So, you know, this is part of the international community plan. There was a lot of conspiracy theory, which um, demoralized our troops as well. And if there was like a few thousand or whatever thousand of troops in Afghanistan, it would have made a big difference, I think, in terms of the outcome, as um, you know, the other uh, guests uh, mentioned as well. Because this is one of the wars. I mean, I know there is a lot of anti-war movements around the world that were, are happy about uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But this is one of the wars that you have invested blood and treasure along with Afghans to keep Afghan schools open for girls. Richard, on that question of morale, uh, there was a very interesting report by um, Rusi uh, on uh, this sort of covert program that the Taliban had embarked on uh, to undermine Afghan army morale. And uh, it detailed how Afghan security forces throughout last summer were surrendering to the Taliban. Uh, it, it talked about the use of tribal elders sent to deliver quite stark messages to Afghan troops saying that, um, you know, that, that they could surrender now and that the Taliban would protect them or if they were to fight, that they, they would be killed. And at the time, there was also, it, it, it appeared that the Taliban had been honouring their promise not to pu punish Afghan soldiers um, who surrendered. Now, that, of course, didn't last, um, but that certainly uh, can't have helped uh, the Afghan army retain retain a lot a, a lot of its morale, and then also, of course, there's the fact that that quite a few uh, Afghan generals and, and and leaders were leaving the country as well. So, um, what 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 do you what do you make of of the uh, of that idea that there that there was there was not morale in in the Afghan army, and whether that was and whether that was fair uh, to the Afghan army, um, which had continued to really fight quite bravely against the Taliban, especially uh, throughout the earlier part of last year when there were when there was heightened Taliban offences throughout the country at the same time as they were slowly getting less and less air support and evacuation support from the West as they were beginning their wind down. Well, I think it reflects the complexity that the West embarked on trying to build a national military force. I mean, there's no question that, you know, Afghans are significant warriors according to their tradition. And there were some amazing units within the Afghan military. But I think part of the problem was the sort of isolation of military units across the country. And in a way, you put your finger on it when you mentioned tribal leaders. I, I, I think our whole approach to Afghanistan in terms of nation building. I mean, I disagreed with right from early on, which is why I favoured this idea of small detachments of special forces going into each province and working with the tribal leaders. Because 
you know, the nature of Afghanistan outside the urban areas. It's essentially a tribal country. And therefore, you know, you build and use the tribal structures to the extent that you're able, rather than these massive military commitments. And if you've been to Afghanistan and you've flown over the country, I mean, the complexity of the geography, the isolation of the valleys, the difficulty of movement through the country, it's, it's just quite formidable. Um, it's quite unlike almost anywhere else, you know, what one has seen. And you only have to read a little bit of Afghan history from the 18th and 19th centuries and read about the great game, you know, to understand why it has this extraordinary 19th century history. Um, so I, I, to an extent, I'm mystified by the surprise that people expressed that the military collapsed so fast, particularly when some of the leading figures in the Afghan military had already, you know, done a runner or taken their money and disappeared into the Gulf states. Um, you know, what does that say for the ordinary warrior's morale? Uh, it's tremendously problematic and difficult. And, and the implosion was just spectacular. I, I completely agree, agree with that. Fauzia, you were in Doha when those talks were taking place. And while we're just sort of looking into that issue of of morale, uh, may I put it to you that 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 a real key element that undermined at the Afghan army's morale was where, that that point when the U.S. began the negotiations with the Taliban, sort of behind the back of the elected Afghan government. Uh, it was described as an act of uh, a clear act of bad faith uh, that wasn't lost on the Afghan army troops who at that point many will have realized that the likelihood of a future Taliban takeover I mean did you feel that that was a betrayal uh, to to your team to the Afghan government negotiating team do you think that was really sort of a, a key a key moment where morale was was really starting to deflate at that point I remember on the 28th of February when uh, the Doha agreement was signed um, um, in Doha. So I was on the way when there were security checkposts and um, the, the police officers stopped the car, my car, just to check. And when they realized that I'm inside the car, they would open the door and start like already sharing you know, their sadness and anger over what was happening in Doha and telling me that... Ms. Kofi, what's happening? You know, uh, what, what is going to happen? What's what the future uh, will look like? Maybe a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions. Um, I don't think the actual collapse actually, you know, um, happened on the 15th or 14th or during July. It basically started um, uh, mainly during the, you know, after the signing of the agreement. But as I said, even from 2014, there was a lot of uh, distrust between the population and the government, which was one of the reasons. Um, and of course, the international community, especially the U.S. policy to talk with uh, Taliban without including the Afghan, you know, kind of broad-based society, the Afghan government, the political community, uh, further infilt infiltrated that mistrust. And that's why I think, you know, um, to just conclude by saying, uh, it happened overnight is probably unjust to our security forces because they had a very, very long 
about 20 years. And when I was in, in conversation with some of these people from my area who fled to Tajikistan, some of them like were in their military bases for two years without, so like these small things, mismanagement. If you are in a military base for two years without visiting your family, you are of course desperate, you are frustrated, you are overwhelmed. You There should have been a proper, you know, a better way of managing. Um, everything. I think the political aspect of it, along with, you know, the talks and bypassing the security forces in the agreement, it's written that the the, the agreement between Taliban and the, the um, Americans, uh, the, the, the title is that this agreement is between the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan in the bracket that the United States does not recognize it and the Americans, which already was kind of in a way giving legitimacy to Taliban. So I think many factors contributed, corruption obviously, poor management, the fact that power was so centric. You know, chief of police of um, our police officers in district um, were appointed by national security advisor of the president from the palace where he obviously never actually was able to visit some of these districts. Um, so everything was controlled um, by few people, which, um, you know, contributed to already a fragile situation, um, you know, being uh, impacted by foreign uh, or international dimension, but rather also internal dimensions as well. I, I think that's a really, really good point. And uh, I, I think it's also, it was a really interesting assessment that Rusi report um, that I mentioned earlier that that looked at the collapse of of the Afghan army. It it also pointed out something I think that that we we should note uh, as we've discussed sort of the various sort of logistical issues um, of the Afghan mission. It noted that the Afghan army, as Richard said, was spread across the country in piecemeal district centers, often surrounded by Taliban controlled countryside and needed to be resupplied by air, which was a completely unsustainable model. And also, as Fauzia mentions, um, a number of the Afghan leaders, officials and military officers um, had emigrated and the national police force was known for corruption and abuse, was widely distrusted by the populace. Um, and lastly, that report also cited that a lot of the hardware uh, of the army was dependent on Western maintenance contractors who obviously were part of that withdrawal over the summer. I want to turn over now, I, uh, I think, to the resettlement program and to the issue of Afghan refugees and their status now. Uh, I believe the US has resettled roughly 76 thousand uh, vulnerable Afghans who were evacuated from Afghanistan since last year. The operation covers around um, 85,000 in total. It's one of the largest resettlement programs uh, in recent U.S. history. Uh, I believe that the, uh, the, the the largest was after the Vietnam War, where more than a million uh, Vietnamese were resettled in the U.S. Um, but with the Afghan asylum program, that has a backlog of I think more than 410,000 cases, uh, uh, according to the Department for Homeland Security. And uh, what's happening now is a lot of people are lobbying for this uh, Afghan Adjustment Act, which would allow allow those people to bypass the program and, and apply for, for permanent residency directly. 
um, because tens of thousands of Afghans are stuck in this sort of limbo. And I think it's also really important to, to mention that there are lots of cases of thousands of Afghan evacue evacuees remaining at various locations um, across the across the Middle East. Uh, there's, I think, 6,500 Afghan evacuees at the Emirates Humanitarian City, which is this apartment complex in the outskirts of Abu Dhabi. But all, all the... Um, uh, the, the refugees there, they cannot leave this sort of makeshift refugee housing facility. They're not allowed to leave it day or night. And it's it's resulting in in the mental health deterioration of a lot of people there. Uh, Jake, I saw you last summer uh, when you were deep in the in the throes of trying to trying to do everything that you could as a civilian. Um, uh, as, as a military veteran, but as, as a civilian trying to help uh, the, the efforts to evacuate vulnerable Afghans um, from, from Kabul. I think I saw you just three days after the fall, the fall of Kabul. Talk to us about, about that summer and, and, and how you managed to try and, and get Afghans out and uh, off the back of the British and American evac evacuations. Yeah, it was certainly an intense period. And it was interesting because at, at first I was a little bit you know, more on the outside and I was thinking, you know, I'll really just be able to help some people with their paperwork and there'll be sort of an orderly process here. And then as it became close to the call of fall of Kabul, I was urging people to, to, to fly if they could to Dubai or Turkey to other places. And then even so on the 15th, when it fell, it was it was sunned. Um, and then I think a couple of days in, it became clear that the evacuation system was not working very well. And, and part of how that became clear to me is that people within the U.S. government, even at senior levels, were reaching out to me um, for help and to others for help. You know, people who had past connections on the ground there, who knew people um, in the military there, who knew people um, that might have you know access to vehicles or, or transportation to help move people to the airport, which which very quickly became overwhelmed. Um, and so, what kind of sprung up during that period was this sort of informal network of, of networks where you would have these WhatsApp and signal groups that were composed of ex-military NGO business people in some cases, in some cases strictly ex-military or ex-intelligence, and you sort of ha would have to be vouched into the group. And then once where you were in those groups, you were exchanging information and resources and trying to get people access to the airport, um, which was overwhelmed and had a number of gates, but it wasn't clear when those gates were open or what sort of routes to the airport were safe. Um, and so became this sort of intensifying uh, effort, which at, at the beginning was really, you know, when I think I saw you, you know, sort of ducking out to take a phone call and try to move some people and eventually became absolutely, you know, completely full time. I, I flew to Dubai. I tried to get into Kabul. Um, I, with some of my colleagues, sort of set up a 24 hour system of constantly being on WhatsApp and monitoring the movement of, of different groups. And we did have some success and we, we got, I think, several hundred people out. Uh, in conjunction with others, um, but after the Abbey Gate attack on on August 26, when uh, 13 American military members were killed, it became much more difficult to, to move people out, and, and soon the efforts were essentially shut down entirely. Um, now, since then, there actually has been still there is still some movement of people out of Afghanistan uh, through various uh, channels, and, and that's been encouraging to see. Um, and there's certainly a huge need on the refugee side now. There is, as you said, a number of people, including people I know who are still in sort of temporary housing in the Middle East or uh, in the U.S. Um, and they need a pathway uh, to, to the U.S. And, and not just to be here, but also to have jobs to be able to provide for their families. Um, 
And so that's where I think some of mine and others' efforts have shifted. Well, I think, of course, we could have done better. Um, and, of course, you know, these type of evacuations can be very complex and difficult. I think one of the problems with what happened in Kabul was, okay, the, the lack of time, um, the rapid deterioration of the security system. But, you know, what hap tends to happen in the UK, you know, is they put together a team of people in the, let's say, the Foreign Office in London. And the trouble is that however much goodwill those people have, if you get a list of relatively junior um, civil servants who don't have much operational experience and stick them behind desks with telephones, what are they actually going to achieve? And uh, what Jake has talked about, you know, is the practicalities. I mean, you know, he knew Afghanistan, knew Afghans, had contacts. And I mean, similarly, I can give you examples in the past. I won't, don't want to go into detail where in an emergency situation, the government had to come to my service to find officers who spoke the right language, had the right contacts, could do things fast, knew how to operate in really flexible, difficult situations um, and, you know, put together whatever necessary rescue group that you wanted. And I mean, there were some magnificent achievements against pressure in Afghanistan, but basically the teams were put together too late. They were inadequately staffed. They didn't have the right people. And the, the people that achieved the most were people like Jake and freelancers and people who felt massive personal commitments to Afghan friends who, as it were, did it off the cuff, but did it pretty effectively, but their means were limited. So I think, you know, someone could probably sit down and write a report about this, but you need in these circumstances of crisis to be incredibly entrepreneurial and you don't need to follow a set of rules. And very often the very worst people to try to be asked to organise it are a set of unimaginative, relatively junior civil servants sitting in an office in London. I'm sorry to say that, but... Um, that's the reality. And if you run a service which is highly operational and you have lots of people who are used to doing weird things in weird places and thinking on their feet, and those are the people in these emergency situations who tend to give you answers and get results. But it's a very, very tough thing for a government to sort of think round these corners. Mm. I think a lot of people might uh, agree with you on uh, the, the limits of Whitehall and civil service in, in situations like that last year. Uh, we have space for a couple uh, questions left. I, I have to ask, um, Fauzia, one of the biggest losers of all of this, uh, are Afghanistan's women and girls, of course. I mean, initially the Taliban, uh, at, at the start of their takeover, they were talking up all these claims and promises to respect education uh, and rights for women and, and girls. And that, of course, was swiftly put to bed when I think they banned girls from school in September, uh, less than a month after the beginning of their rule. It's difficult now for female teachers to remain at work. Uh, also, female civil servants, doctors and nurses are finding it hard to remain in work across the country. Fauzia, what is the current status of, of women's rights in Afghanistan? And how likely do you think it is that the Taliban might be 
able to be pushed or coerced somehow into rowing back their draconian treatment of women and girls in exchange for more international aid and cooperation? I think uh, Taliban managed to create a narrative that they have now changed, that they are, um, you know, um, not the Taliban as they were in power in 2000, in 1996 um, till 2001, um, even including in a dialogue and a negotiation that we had with them. They have been making statements, generic statements, press releases, public appearance that you know, they would respect uh, women's rights within the principles of Islam. I remember during one of our talks, one of the Taliban's um, leaders, who is now, you know, one of the, uh, at one of the key ministries, uh, he's a minister, said um, women can become, um, you know, public officials, uh, run for office, and can become minister of foreign affairs and prime minister. We all, ha uh, you know, uh, seem to believe that narrative, but uh, we are now trapped into the narrative that we try to be believe and, and create it for the Taliban. Um, I think uh, since they have taken over, they have become more extreme in their approach towards um, women and civic liberties. Um, so they have uh, issued um, almost 28 uh, verdicts and decrees um, to eliminate uh, women's rights. And um, so it's like since they have taken over every month, they issue two decrees uh, from um, the fact that they ha the uh, 17th of September is when or 19th of September is when they have uh, publicly said that girls cannot go to school beyond grade six uh, to the fact that they have asked women to get out of their homes with male company and um, and uh, cover their, you know, um, their face uh, as uh, burqa, which is full cover, is Taliban's favorite hijab. But also women, if they don't wear burqa, they need to be properly covered. And if they don't appropriately cover, their male member of the family will be punished to the fact that um, uh, mobility is minimized and limited. And the last decree is that they have issued is basically about freedom of speech. If anybody say anything that is disrespectful to the Taliban um, uh, leadership, uh, they will be punished. So I think uh, they have basically put all their emphasis on minimizing women's rights. And this is in a situation where um, if you look at most of these Taliban who have studied in Pakistani madrasa, in Pakistan, it's not the same. The Pakistan was witnessing a woman prime minister, um, a woman uh, parliament speaker, foreign minister. Um, where in the other country across you know, the Gulf, in, in Qatar, Doha, where they had their office, political office and negotiations were um, hold there, um, they have more female in schools than male, 12% more female in schools than men. So the question I, uh, many Afghans keep raising is, um, you know, what kind of Islam the Taliban represent? I don't, I think uh, girls' school is one of the milestones against which we um, measure Taliban's genuinity on their promises. But uh, I must say that girls not being allowed to go to school is not the only challenge. What if girls go to school, but they have, um, they, the Taliban, um, you know, review the curricula and make it so extreme that, uh, you know, after grade 12, we have a bunch of girls who graduate as Taliban's ideology. Um, so, um, yes, we need to emphasize on, on, on Taliban reopening the school because a lot of girls are being traumatized. 
Um, now I am in contact. We do have a school in Kabul, and in school now we are opening in provinces for girls. But uh, it's not about education; it's also about their mental health that one has to take care. But I think I'm also, you know, it's right for us to be worried about the future of the country as a whole. Where are we going? There is lack of um, political vision, lack of. Uh, a lot of uncertainty or other military extremists using Afghanistan soils once again. I know that from Central Asian countries, for instance, all these jihadi leaders or figures are in Afghanistan, between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Iman Zawahiri was killed in Kabul. We don't know if really Taliban have meaningfully disassociated themselves with other military extremism. There is a government or a power that is not legitimate. So I'm really worried as a whole for the country's future and for all the transformation that has happened. And Taliban were so confused when they initially entered Kabul about how to handle a transformed nation. Mm, I, I think all of that is really, really important uh, context from Fauzia. And Fauzia mentions, uh, of course, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Now, I want to just finish um, with that question of terrorism in Afghanistan. Uh, this this summer, the U.S. carried out that drone strike right in the heart of Kabul, uh, killing the leader of Al-Qaeda, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. There's speculation that the Taliban were doing quite a lot to shelter and even protect Zawahiri. Do you think, could, could his death mean the end of the decades-long relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda? Well, I think, you know, you're talking about the Taliban as though it were a government um, which has, you know, a firm central structure. I think the problem in, within the Taliban is, you know, there are various centers of influence, various people of authority who probably have different views and different ways of seeing different problems. And in my view, it would be very naive to think that the Taliban or elements of the Taliban um, are not sheltering terrorist individuals and in cahoots with them, working with them, maybe even you know planning new conspiracies with them. Um, there are probably bits of the Taliban that disapprove of that and have a different view, but they do not you know operate um, like. Uh, you know, a, a, a controlled administration. Um, so, I mean, I wasn't the slightest bit surprised to uh, discover that the Egyptian doctor was sitting, you know, in a prominent house in Kabul. And, um, you know, hats off to the Americans for finding him. But in a way, that's the solution to a past problem, because there will be other people linked with Al-Qaeda, you know, who will come forward. Um, and okay, it, 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 it's a counter-terrorist success in inverted commas, but it isn't a solution to a long-term problem. And I think that uh, the result of what's happened in Afghanistan is that probably it again becomes a focus for extremists where they can find a degree of sanctuary and ability to plan and prepare attacks uh, under a protective regime. I mean, what we found in Afghanistan when we went in after 9-11 was pretty shocking. Uh, and I don't want to go into detail about that. But uh, I fear that we may be going down the same path again, maybe not quite to the same degree, but uh, there will be elements of the terrorist movement, such as we can call it that, 
that will find sanctuary under this Taliban administration or so-called administration. Jake, do you do you agree with that? And do you think the assassination of, of Zawahiri is sort of cutting the head off the snake of Taliban-Qaeda relationships? Or is it more like a hydra where if you cut the head off, another one just springs in to replace it? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit more towards the hydra. I think um, it is an important um, symbolic uh, victory of sorts, I guess, um, um, you know, to, to, to remove essentially that this sort of spiritual head of al-Qaeda. Um, but, I, you know, I had my experiences in Iraq where I think we were being quite successful in terms of hunting high-value targets and, and capturing or eliminating them, um, but it wasn't necessarily changing the reality on the ground. Um, you know, I think sort of that type of strategy of, of, of targeting key individuals um, within al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups is only one part of a strategy. It is not a strategy in and of itself. Um, and so I think it is a milestone of sorts, but it's a little bit of a fearic victory in the overall context of Afghanistan right now. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. If you enjoyed this conversation, why not subscribe to us so you never miss an episode? We drop new shows every Thursday. From me and the team, thanks for listening and see you next time.